we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. In this episode of Conspiracy Theories, we're going to talk about some fairly controversial ideas surrounding major tenets of Christian belief. Please note that we are not expressing a belief or disbelief in any of these theories. We are merely discussing them objectively. At the dawn of the 12th century, a young man is ushered into an underground room hidden in a French castle. His blindfold is removed, and he blinks to get used to the torchlight. He's surrounded by a dozen men, all armed, all wearing white, just like him. They are his brothers, other members of the Knights Templar. But where have they brought him? The Knights lead him further into the room. There, a group of men in black robes stand in front of a massive door. The young man receives no true introductions, only a single name, the Priory of Sion. He has been sent to help them defend something precious. His pulse quickens. Will he finally get a chance to see it? Ever since he became a knight, he has longed to glimpse the treasure the Templars are charged to protect the legendary Holy Grail. The robed men lead him through the door into a small, warm bedroom. He stands at the door, unsure of what to do. One of the robed men gestures to a small white crib in the middle of the room. The Templar cautiously approaches the crib. 
he expects to find a chalice made of gold or a shining platinum dish. Instead, there's only an infant boy. Who is this? One of the robed men answers in a raspy voice. The child is a descendant of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the Grail. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories from the Parcast Network. Each week, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode about the legendary Holy Grail and the secret organization that is believed to protect it, the Priory of Sion. Since the time of the Crusades, legends have told of a treasure imbued with the special powers of Jesus Christ. Some describe it as a stone or dish. Others believe it is the cup Jesus drank from at the Last Supper or a chalice filled with the Savior's blood. But what if they all got it wrong? What if the grail isn't a physical object at all, but rather a precious holy secret that needed to be defended at all costs? What could be more precious than a child born of the Messiah? This week, we'll look into the background of the conspiracy theories about the possible descendants of Jesus Christ. Was he secretly married to Mary Magdalene, and did they have children? If so, was the information suppressed because it threatened the hegemony of the church? Could his descendants be walking among us today, protected by secret organizations like the Priory of Sion and the Knights Templar? Next week, we'll look into the more modern derivations of this theory. Where did it originate? Could proof of its truth have been found by an impoverished priest in the French town of Rennes-le-Chateau? For today, though, we're going to do something a bit unusual and focus on the original story of the Holy Grail. This is a bit of a conspiracy theory of its own, as the Grail doesn't officially exist. The mysterious relic is allegedly protected by the Priory of Sion, an organization that was founded during the First Crusade. But in order to discuss the origins of the secret society, it's important to understand the beliefs of Christianity and the history of the early Catholic Church. For that, we turn to the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
The four Gospels serve as the first four books in the New Testament of the Bible and give an account of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus is generally, historically considered to have been born between the years 6 and 4 BCE. According to the Gospels, Jesus grew up in the Roman province of Judea. He became a Jewish religious leader and traveled the region spreading his unique spiritual message. Jesus traveled with a small contingent of followers. Among his most important followers were his 12 apostles, who were sent on missions to preach his ideas, and Mary Magdalene, a Jewish woman who supported Jesus' teachings and was present for many of the miracles he performed. Some of Jesus' teachings challenged the authority of the established Jewish leaders. Modern scholars agree that sometime between 30 and 33 CE, these leaders accused Jesus of inciting rebellion against the Roman government and had him arrested. The Roman prefect at the time, Pontius Pilate, sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion as punishment. The four canonical gospels hold that Jesus is the Son of God and he was raised from the dead three days after his crucifixion. Later, his physical body and spirit both ascended into heaven. Historians generally agree these Gospels were written sometime between 66 and 110 CE, at least 30 years after Jesus' death. The books were originally written anonymously and were given their current titles sometime in the second century. The Gospels were combined with other Christian spiritual writings from the first century to form the New Testament. The list of books in the Christian Bible as we know it today was first completed in the year 367 CE by Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria. Before this list was standardized, suggested reading lists for early Christian churches varied. Many times they included texts that were later excluded from the canon. It's not always apparent why certain texts were excluded from the New Testament, but generally, if a document was believed to have been written after the first century, it was excluded from Bishop Athanasius's list. The lack of explicit reason why each gospel was accepted or rejected from the canon has led to accusations that the church suppressed secrets hidden in the excluded text. The modern church's reply is that it must be trusted that God has chosen certain texts to preserve and others to discard. That explanation doesn't discount the possibility that the texts were tampered with. If hostile, power-hungry entities influenced the early church, then the canon could have been corrupted. It could even exclude absolutely essential information about Jesus. The early church certainly did work to silence dissent from Christian sects it deemed heretical. Many of the texts, later excluded from the New Testament, are known as the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels are all believed to have been written after the four canonical Gospels, and some of them offer drastically different versions of the teachings of Jesus. The Gnostic Gospels inspired a series of alternative Christian sects which butted heads with the Catholic Church. Disagreements, particularly about the divine nature of Jesus, led to conflict and infighting. The Church eventually crushed the heretical sects by declaring them enemies of the faith and destroying records of their teachings. 
Evidence that the church deliberately destroyed information it deemed inconvenient can be found in the Marsaba letter, discovered by scholar Morton Smith in 1958. The document seems to be written by Clement of Alexandria, an elder of the church who lived in Egypt during the second century. It is addressed to someone named Theodore and praises him for silencing a heretical sect known as the Carpocratians. Like many other Gnostic sects, the Carpocratians believe Jesus was not divine. They also believe that Jesus freed himself from the material world through the attainment of knowledge, rather than by faith alone. The church did not take kindly to the Carpocratians' beliefs. The Marsaba letter reads, in part, You did well in silencing the unspeakable teachings of the Carpocratians, for even if they should say something true, one who loves the truth should not, even so, agree with them. It goes on to hint that there is a second secret gospel of Mark. It states, quote, Carpocrates so enslaved a certain presbyter of the church in Alexandria that he got from him a copy of the secret gospel, which he both interpreted according to his blasphemous and carnal doctrine, one must never give way, nor should one concede that the secret gospel is by Mark, but should even deny it on oath. For not all true details are to be said to all men. But there are reasons to doubt the authenticity of this letter. Morton Smith supposedly discovered it in a monastery in 1958 and took several photographs of the document. Another group of scholars viewed the letter in 1976, but since then, no one else has been allowed to see it. Some believe the letter is a forgery perpetrated by Smith in the 1950s. Others, like theology professor Francis Wilson, believe the letter is authentic for the time period, but was not written by Clement of Alexandria. They believe it was written by another person named Clement who was not a member of the early church hierarchy. Since the letter has not been conclusively tested by paleographers, the mystery remains unsolved. It could be a forgery, a case of mistaken identity, or truly genuine. Well, no matter what, there's plenty of room to see where our modern understanding of Jesus' life could be faulty. If that's true, it could mean that the church sought to hide information that threatened its hegemony, even if that information was accurate. Coming up, we'll examine how the Catholic Church may have drastically altered its views in the 4th century to spread the faith more quickly. Now back to the story. The early Christian church was marked by significant infighting. Church leaders sought to standardize their theology and spread the word of Jesus as far as possible. But fundamental disagreements about the nature of the Messiah needed to be resolved before the faith could be spread. The most important point of contention was Jesus' status as a divine being. Some members of the early church believed that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God and sought to portray him as a mortal prophet instead. Despite their protestations, the church decided in the 4th century to definitively state that Jesus was divine. Today, some scholars believe the church hierarchy only imbued Jesus with divine status 
in an attempt to aid Christianity's spread to pagans across Rome. If that was their plan, it worked. The divine elements of Jesus' story dovetailed nicely with many elements of Roman paganism. The champion of Roman Christianity, Emperor Constantine, was actually a pagan. To get the Christian population on his side, Constantine allowed them to worship freely, but he wanted their practices to change to be more compatible with the worship of the sun god, which was popular at the time. To this end, in 325 CE, Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea. This meeting established an official date for Easter, and the council held a vote which determined that Jesus was to be considered divine and not a human prophet. Also, the celebration of Jesus' birthday was moved to December 25th to coincide with Saturnalia, and the Sabbath was moved from Saturday to Sunday in accordance with pagan tradition. There's no doubt certain aspects of Christianity were engineered to be similar to established religious traditions, as it would help their faith spread as quickly and as widely as possible. There were many reasons to make those changes under Constantine. There was also opportunity. One of the reasons Christians were particularly disposed to cooperate with Constantine was because of his predecessor's intolerance. In the early years of the 4th century, Emperor Diocletian did all he could to crush Roman Christianity. He even had all Christian texts in Rome destroyed. Constantine had those same texts recreated. During the composition process, there would have been plenty of chances to rewrite sections that did not align with Roman pagan tradition. Information about Jesus' potential marriage and bloodline could have been removed. After all, the religion was already being tweaked. This illustrates how early Christian doctrine was subject to a lot of change, possibly more than we know today. The earliest complete copy of the New Testament we have dates to the fourth century, the same time as Constantine's rewrites. But there are some complete copies of individual New Testament books, which are dated as early as the second century. Even so, the original Gospels have never been found. All we have are copies. And in reality, these are likely only copies of copies. Because books and scrolls were reproduced by human scribes in those times, there are noticeable errors in every manuscript. There are probably further errors we can't discern. The fact that the New Testament was not compiled until centuries after Jesus' death definitely leaves it open to some scrutiny. Small discrepancies should probably be expected from an old document that has been repeatedly translated throughout the ages. But if the small details given in the New Testament aren't necessarily correct, it's possible the overall narrative is flawed too. According to proponents of the Holy Grail theory, the biggest omission in the biblical narrative is Jesus' secret marriage and family with Mary Magdalene. Theorists believe Jesus survived his crucifixion and escaped to France with Mary Magdalene and their child, otherwise known as the Holy Grail. Supporters of the conspiracy highlight the prominent role Mary Magdalene plays in some Christian traditions. For example, in Eastern Orthodox Christianity and the Gnostic sects, 
Mary Magdalene is called the Apostle of Apostles. In writings that were excluded from the New Testament by Athanasius of Alexandria, she's described as Jesus's closest apostle. Many of these texts were found together in 1945 in the town of Nag Hammadi in Egypt. The Nag Hammadi Library, as it's known, was discovered in a sealed jar buried underground. The site was once near a monastery, and scholars believe it may have been hidden after a crackdown on the Gnostic Gospels sometime before the 9th century. Several of the documents in the library mention Mary Magdalene. In one, called the Gospel of Mary, Matthew tells Peter, quote, Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. The problem is, most of the writings in the Nag Hammadi Library were written after the canonical Gospels, so there's no reason to believe they're more authentic. It's probable that the texts are just another in a long line of speculations about Mary Magdalene. Theories about her relationship to Jesus have always been rampant in the Christian world. In medieval Europe, some scholars conflated her with Mary of Bethany, a penitent sinner who anointed Jesus' feet in the Gospel of Luke. The misinterpretation was not fully corrected until 1969, when the reference to Mary Magdalene washing Jesus' feet was removed from the liturgical calendar, based on a consensus from Catholic historians. Official doctrine now holds that there were two different Marys. But perhaps there have been other misinterpretations of her relationship to Jesus. Although Catholic teaching holds that Jesus was not married, the New Testament never actually says he was not. Although that's not exactly evidence in itself, it was customary for men in those times to be married young. In fact, Jewish Mishnaic law states that an unmarried man may not be a teacher of children. That law only applied to school teachers, however, not spiritual gurus like Jesus. And Harvey MacArthur, a scholar of ancient Judaism, suggests the requirement to be married may not have always been so strict. The Wisdom of Sirach, a well-known Jewish book of ethics written between 200 and 175 BCE, does not mention a marriage requirement. MacArthur writes that this at least raises the possibility that stress on marriage was more prominent after 70 CE, Thus, if John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul were unmarried, they may not have been as exceptional in their day. Even if that's true, supporters of the conspiracy still claim that the Gospel of John contains subtextual hints that Jesus was married. In the Gospel, John relates the story of the wedding at Cana. During the ceremony, Jesus changes water into wine in what is widely regarded as his first miracle and the first evidence of his divinity. The bride and groom are not named in the story. It only says Jesus and his apostles were there. Jesus' mother, Mary, is also in attendance and helps serve the drinks. When the wine runs out, she asks Jesus to create more, which he does by transmuting water. It seems unlikely that Mary would be serving wine if she were not the hostess. It is also unclear why Jesus would decide to perform his first miracle and prove his divinity at someone else's wedding. 
some modern biblical scholars like Bishop Fulton J. Sheen assumed the wedding was for one of Mary's relatives, not Jesus himself. If that were true, it would explain why Mary might be hosting. It would also explain why Jesus refilled the wine as part of his own duties as a family member. There may be several possible reasons the wedding at Cana is given such prominent treatment in the New Testament, but supporters of the Grail theory claim the wedding is not the only textual evidence that Jesus had a family. For more, they point to the figure of Barabbas, also known as Jesus Barabbas. In all four standard Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Barabbas is mentioned as the leader of an insurrection against Rome. Before the crucifixion, Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect, offers the people of Rome the chance to release either Jesus or Barabbas from their punishment. The people chose to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. It is odd that Pilate yields to the mob in this account. There's no other evidence that releasing prisoners at the whim of the crowd was ever a historical practice of Roman governors. This leads many modern scholars to believe that the entire incident was fictional. They contend the scene of the people condemning Jesus to die is a literary flourish meant to emphasize the rejection of the Son of God. In some ways, this seems more likely given Barabbas' name, which translates from Aramaic to Son of the Father. If he is a rhetorical invention, then it shows the people rejecting the true Son of the Father, Jesus, for the false son, Barabbas. But Barabbas is not his full name. Early documents written by Matthew refer to him as Jesus Barabbas. Many scholars believe this was likely how the name was originally written. Sometime in the third century, the theologian Origen of Alexandria had Jesus stricken from his name in all manuscripts. Origen believed Jesus was added to Barabbas' name by unspecified enemies of the church when the Gospels were being copied in the second century. In his opinion, a holy name like Jesus could not possibly have been Barabbas' real name. But what if Barabbas was called Jesus Barabbas, which essentially translates to Jesus Jr. because of a literal relation to Jesus? If Barabbas was Jesus' son, it would help explain why the crowd was given the choice to release either the father or the son. Since Jesus was likely crucified sometime between 30 and 33 CE, this means he was probably between the ages of 34 and 39 at the time. If he was married at the customary age of 16 and had a child immediately, then it's possible his son was in his early 20s. This certainly would have qualified him to be described as a man by the Gospels. And if Jesus had one child, he could have easily had more than one. All of this is speculation. It also ignores the more likely scenario that the man called Barabbas never existed at all. If he did exist, he was likely not released from prison under the circumstances described in the Gospels. But if Barabbas wasn't real, it only underscores how incomplete the story set forth in the Bible is. The tale gets more suspicious when the crucifixion is described. The crucifixion of Jesus is one of the most unanimously agreed upon historical events in the Bible. 
The vast majority of scholars believe the crucifixion occurred, but some supporters of the Holy Grail conspiracy actually disagree. They believe Jesus survived the crucifixion and escaped Judea with his alleged family, traveling all the way to France, then known as Gaul. This isn't out of the question. Though crucifixion was not an unusual punishment in Jesus' time, even the Bible acknowledges the circumstances of Jesus' execution were suspicious. For one thing, crucifixion was a punishment used against enemies of Rome. But Rome had no quarrel with Jesus. It was only Jewish authorities that found his preaching heretical and dangerous. Pontius Pilate, the prefect who sentenced Jesus to death, is described as reluctant to do so. In John chapter 18, verse 38, Pontius states, quote, I find in him no fault at all. But because Jesus claimed to be a descendant of David and therefore a king of the Jewish people, he was accused of being a threat to Rome's authority, so Pilate's hand was forced by public sentiment. It is strange that Pilate would bow to the whims of the crowd when he was backed by the Roman military. But given the charges against Jesus, he may have worried about being punished by his superiors if he did not deal with dissent harshly enough. If that's true, it's ironic, as Pilate was sent back to Rome in the year 36 CE for dealing with the Jewish people too severely. But even if we accept that Jesus was sentenced to death by crucifixion, there are still inconsistencies in the story. The details might point to a different interpretation. The entire crucifixion was a hoax, and Pontius Pilate was in on it. Coming up next, we'll examine the biblical account of Jesus' crucifixion in an attempt to uncover the secret of the Holy Grail. Now back to the story. Adherents of the Holy Grail theory believe Jesus Christ survived his crucifixion and fled to France with his alleged wife, Mary Magdalene, and their child. Supporters argue that the proof of this theory can be found hidden in the subtext of the Bible itself. One thing theorists find suspicious about the story of the crucifixion is the speed of Jesus' death. The four Gospels agree that Jesus died within around six hours of being nailed to the cross. Believe it or not, that was unusually quick given the method of execution. According to contemporary historical accounts, crucifixions in which the legs were fastened to the cross usually lasted at least a full day and sometimes longer. The execution could be much quicker if the victim's legs were not fastened. Hanging by the arms kept the subject from breathing. But if the feet were tied, or in this case, nailed to the cross, it allowed the victim to put the pressure on their feet and breathe. This meant the victim would be killed slowly by thirst and exposure to the elements, rather than suffocation. The Gospel of Mark acknowledges that crucifixions usually lasted longer than six hours. Mark chapter 15, verse 44 reads, quote, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. There are several reasons why Jesus may have died relatively quickly. First, Pilate had him whipped with a cat of nine tails before the execution. He was then beaten by the soldiers. 
The injuries were apparently so severe that he couldn't carry his cross to the execution site on his own, which was unusual. The combination of these injuries could have been severe enough that they quickened his death. The other possibility is that Jesus didn't actually die at all. In the Gospel of John, after he's nailed to the cross, Jesus asks for water and is offered a sponge of vinegar instead. He dies soon after tasting the sponge. Perhaps the sponge Jesus drank from wasn't soaked in vinegar at all. Maybe it was a type of opioid solution meant to put Jesus to sleep. In that case, it would only look like he was dead. Opium was a known and readily available sedative in Judea during Jesus' time. It's possible that someone could have smuggled it to Jesus, but assuming he took it orally via the sponge, it could have taken up to an hour for the drug to kick in. Supposing it did take effect quickly, the opium would have suppressed Jesus' pain. This would have allowed him to play dead and remain silent as the soldiers removed him from the cross. It must have been a powerful sedative, considering the fact that a Roman soldier later stabbed Jesus with a spear to make sure he was dead. True, but the suspicious details don't end there. Standard Roman practice was to leave an executed man's body on the cross until the vultures got rid of it. But in the Bible, Jesus' body is given to a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, to be properly buried. This could suggest that Pilate was cooperating with the apostles. If he helped them fake the crucifixion, it explains why he would break protocol to give the body to Joseph. We've established that Pilate was reluctant to have Jesus executed in the first place. Pilate probably felt his job was done after Jesus was pronounced dead. Then, out of compassion or indifference, he allowed Jesus' followers to bury him. Whether he was conspiring with the apostles or not, there have been several other historical cases where a victim was given a proper burial after being crucified, so it isn't a complete historical anomaly. Some adherents of this conspiracy theory believe a slightly modified version of the tale where Jesus avoided crucifixion by sending a substitute in his place. This accords with the traditional Islamic view of Jesus, Chapter 4, verse 157 of the Quran states, quote, And for their saying, Indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. According to some theorists, the Quran offers a more accurate version of Jesus' crucifixion than the New Testament. One early Christian text which supports the Quranic account was found in the Nag Hammadi Library. Called the Second Treatise of the Great Seth, it includes a supposed statement by Jesus himself. The statement reads, I did not succumb to them as they had planned, and I did not die in reality but in appearance, lest I be put to shame by them. For my death, which they think happened, happened to them in their error and blindness, since they nailed their man unto their death. The document in question is dated to the third century, which means it was written after the Gospels. It also includes alleged quotations from Jesus, in which he calls John the Baptist, Adam and Moses, laughingstocks, for worshiping a false god. 
If these documents have any truth to them, they have huge implications. But as usual, there are more questions than answers. For example, the documents don't explain where Jesus went after the fake crucifixion. According to many supporters of the Grail theory, he fled to France, then known as Gaul, with Mary Magdalene and their child or children. If he did survive the crucifixion, his protection could have made the journey easier for his family. This theory is solely based on legends about the Holy Grail, which emerged a thousand years later during the Crusades. It would have meant traveling over 2,500 miles from Judea to Gaul. All told, there's not much textual evidence to suggest that Mary traveled to Gaul with the Grail, or that the Grail was actually her child and not a physical object. But despite the lack of evidence, it would have made sense if she had gone to Gaul. She would be far away from persecution and her family could live anonymously. There were also Jewish communities in Gaul at the time, so she would not have been the only one to make the long journey. If this is true, it means Jesus' bloodline would have survived, and for thousands of years, the family has remained hidden from the world. There is admittedly little, other than scraps of evidence in ancient texts, to suggest the overall conspiracy holds any water so far. But not many documents survive 2,000 years. There may be evidence from later historical periods which suggest the great secret of Jesus' bloodline was preserved. For this, we turn to the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar was a Catholic military organization founded in 1119 in Jerusalem after the First Crusade. The original stated purpose of the order was to protect Christian pilgrims on their travels to Jerusalem. The road was inundated with bandits at the time. As a result, many travelers were attacked and robbed on their way to the Holy City. But the Templars only consisted of nine impoverished knights to begin with. They couldn't have done a very thorough job protecting the roads. It's possible they had another hidden purpose. Whatever their cause, the organization attracted donations. The knights wore all-white clothing featuring a prominent red cross. They rode heavily armored horses and took vows of poverty. As a result, they were popular avatars for the Christian ideals of strength and virtue. Thanks to sympathetic church figures, the knights were officially endorsed by the church 10 years after their founding in 1129 CE. This led them to solicit even more donations over the next decade. In 1139, they were given a boost by Pope Innocent II. He issued an edict proclaiming the Templars immune to all local laws, taxes, and authorities other than the Pope. This proclamation upset some of the other church orders which took part in the Crusades, but it made the Templars bulletproof for a time. They consolidated their resources and acted almost unilaterally in the Holy Land, far away from the influences of the kings and lords of Europe. New recruits flooded into the Knights Templar. Some were used in the front lines of the Crusades, but far more were assigned to strictly administrative positions. The administrators brought in donations and bought businesses. Soon, the order owned farms, castles, and even a fleet of ships. 
The Templars' financial prowess was so great that it even laid the foundation for modern banking. Pilgrims could drop off their valuables and money with the Templar branch in whatever city they departed from. In return, the Templars gave them a certificate of credit, written in cryptographic code, that could be redeemed in Jerusalem once they arrived. At its peak in the 12th century, the Knights Templar was a massive organization. It grew unfettered for over a century and had its hand in lending money and cultivating business all over the world. It's possible their wealth and time in the Holy Land led to them discovering secrets that they were not supposed to know, such as Jesus's clandestine marriage and child. The order was certainly the target of dark rumors. Some accused them of practicing witchcraft or alchemy. The only evidence to support these accusations were the innocuous Latin symbols carved onto the walls of some Templar halls. This could have been a concerted attempt to ruin the Templars' reputation. The church did not want the organization to become too powerful on its own, lest it threaten the power of official church leaders. Nevertheless, rumors swirled about the Templars engaging in unchristian behavior. They were accused of spitting on the cross and worshiping either the devil or a magical disembodied head. By 1307, the rumors were out of control and the Templars were no longer able to contain them. Around that time, the Holy Army lost the Crusades and the Templars were forced back into Europe. The outward reasons for the organization's existence, protecting Christians in Jerusalem, was gone, and with it, so was their power. King Philip IV of France happened to owe a lot of money to the Templars, so he decided to crack down on the organization to get out of debt. In the early 14th century, he arrested all the French Knights Templar he could find. Captives were tortured until they confessed to denying Jesus, disrespecting the cross, and worshiping a severed head. The accusations of repudiating Jesus and disrespecting the cross make sense. They served Philip's purpose of depicting the Templars as an anti-Christian organization. But the repeated accounts of the severed head are odd. The confessions to this act were extracted during torture and are far from reliable. But if they were true, it would confirm the Templars engaged in secret rituals. Some proponents of the Grail theory claim the unidentified head belonged to the Templar founder, John the Baptist, or even Jesus Christ himself. We don't know for sure, but inquisitors at the time may have found evidence that the head wasn't just fantasy. In Paris, a large silver container in the shape of a woman's head was found in a Templar meeting hall. Inside were two bones from a human skull. When faced with the silver container, one Templar claimed it was not a part of any of their rituals. To this day, its purpose or meaning is not known. If the mysterious head was, in fact, a woman's head, it could have been from Mary Magdalene herself. Unfortunately, it's impossible to separate fact from fiction from embellishment. The only goal of the Inquisitors was to prove the Templars were enemies of the Catholic Church, not to uncover the truth about their rituals. Still, in light of the confusing mix of myth and facts surrounding the Templars, 
I don't think we can be positive it was all a sham. Perhaps the Pope asking Philip to torture and kill members of the Templar to silence some unsavory rumors. Perhaps the Knights Templar were hiding something even darker than a severed head. According to the conspiracy theory, they were hiding the descendants of Jesus, referred to as the Holy Grail. The Grail was first connected to the Knights Templar by Wolfram von Eschenbach, who wrote the epic poem Potzival sometime in the early 1200s. In the story, a knight named Potzival journeys to the magic castle of the Holy Grail, located in a mythical part of Britain. There, he meets the custodians of the treasure, the Knights Templar. Potzival gets close to obtaining the Grail, but at the pivotal moment, he forgets to ask the Grail's keeper an important question. When he wakes up the next morning, the Grail is gone and the castle is deserted. There were many more epic romances, poems, and stories about the Grail during the Crusades. It's strange that a legend about a relic belonging to Jesus suddenly appeared at this time, 1,200 years after his death. Considering the nature of the Crusades, it's not surprising that stories about biblical artifacts would have been popular. After all, one of the aims of the wars was to recover the Holy Lands and treasures for Christendom. Still, there were many Catholic military orders during the Crusades, the Hospitallers and Teutonic Knights, to name a couple. Yet in many different stories, the Knights Templar are named as the protectors of the Grail, even though their established purposes had nothing to do with seeking out or maintaining artifacts. A prominent tale purported to be the continuation of Essenbaugh's Potzival was reportedly written by Chrétien de Troyes and titled Père Laveau. The story is full of references to the Templars. The main character, Percival, finds a castle which houses a secret society familiar with the Grail. They wear white clothing, which features a red cross, just like the Templars, and the masters of the society reference heads sealed in silver. The story also features extremely brutal and realistic depictions of combat. Some believe the story must have been written by a Templar with actual wartime experience. If it was, it could reveal some truths about the hidden purpose of the order. It's possible that Père Laveau was written by a Templar, but that's not a common consensus. By the time of the story's writing, the Templars had made their way into many Arthurian romances, so references to them in fictional texts are not unusual. And even if it was written by a knight, that wouldn't mean it was based on fact. No, of course not, but the mention of the Silver Heads is striking. And the fact remains that in all of these stories, the Templars are rumored to be hiding something. Something, perhaps. But these stories don't lead us to any definitive conclusion. For that, we'll have to look further into another secret society, the Priory of Sion, who are alleged to protect the Holy Grail even today. But that leads into another, more modern facet of the Holy Grail theory, so we'll wrap up the first part of our discussion here. Next week, we'll delve deeper into the conspiracy theories surrounding the Holy Grail and the Priory of Sion. The biblical and historical evidence we've discussed today is just the tip of the iceberg. Conspiracy theory number one. 
A secret organization known as the Priory of Sion has worked in conjunction with the Knights Templar to protect the descendants of Jesus. Conspiracy theory number two. The secrets of these organizations were hidden in the small French village of Rennes-le-Chateau for centuries and discovered by an impoverished priest in the 20th century. Finally, we'll discuss some oddball conspiracy theories, ranging from the theory that the bloodline of Jesus traces back to Adam and Eve to the idea that Jesus was an extraterrestrial. Even before we've delved into the official founding of the Priory of Sion, the mystery of the Holy Grail has covered hundreds of years of religious history. From here, the stories and the theories only get wilder. We'll see how next time. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next Wednesday. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Terrell Wells and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.